Hi, and welcome to A Time to Thrill. It's me, your host, Amy Austin. It is May. Um, rapidly galloping through the year. Um, next, it'll, oh my God, yeah, the next month, it'll be halfway through the year. Um, I'm not sure what I plan to accomplish for 2023, but I guess now is the time to get on the stick. This month, I am bringing you an interview with legal thriller author Pamela Samuel Young. So I invited Pamela to do the podcast because oddly, um, except for Melissa F. Miller, I have not had a lot of legal thriller authors on the podcast, um, mainly probably because I started writing in romance and wrote a lot of them um, at the same time I was writing legal thrillers. But um, when I was unable to get my first legal thriller published, I did turn to romance um, and those were published. And then from there I thought, well, maybe I'm a romance author um, solely. And then I found myself back writing legal thrillers, writing them simultaneously, which was hard. And now I'm writing legal thrillers only for now. You never know. That said, um, while we were talking during this conversation, one of the things I realized is that I don't know a lot of legal thriller authors of color, um, black women who write thrillers or legal thrillers. And I wonder if we're a small group. So that's something I'm actually thinking about. And um, in the show notes, there will be some links about that. Um, One of the groups that I do belong to something called Crime Writers of Color. Um, And if you're on my newsletter, I sent out a link to a YouTube video I did in March, maybe. Um, It was just 10 questions um, for Crime Writers of Color. Um, I think I did the second one um, on YouTube. But that is the group right now where I know the most um, writers of color who write crime fiction, not writers of color generally. I know a lot of um, writers of color um, who write romance because I know a lot of romance writers. Um, so this will be, it's a super interesting conversation because um, Pamela Samuels Young um, writes about uh, black, has black protagonists um, in her books, you know, out fighting crime and dealing with crime. Um, in and around Los Angeles um, from the books I've read. And that's super interesting. I have a lot of thoughts about crime in Los Angeles um, because I don't write about it. And in my head, Los Angeles is glitz and glamour and New York, anything east of the Mississippi is, you know, I don't know, gritty and crime filled. Um, As far as fiction goes, not as far as life is concerned. So um, Pamela has written a number of legal thrillers. She is in the process of publishing a book that she has co-written, which is really interesting, um, and back to traditional publishing. And in addition, one of the things, if you go look her up on Amazon or wherever, she did write a book about um, called Kinky Coily um, about sort of black hair care, which I find fascinating. And we do talk a little bit about this in the podcast. So without further ado, let me introduce you to, let me say this, NAACP Image Award winner, Pamela Samuels Young. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Amy Austin and welcome to A Time to Thrill. This month, I am delighted to have Pamela Samuels Young on the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. It is so interesting. (laughs) Okay, I'm very excited to talk to you for many reasons. But let's start with, well, you're born and raised in California, which I always find fascinating (laughs) because the only person I know born and raised in California is my own child. So how, how is it? Let me say this. In terms of crime fiction and grittiness, do you think that California lends itself to that in the same way that we think of it well, in Chicago, New York, those kinds of places? Um, well, I never thought about that. But I, I mean, I think there's crime everywhere, even in the, you know, the, the hoity-toity areas. Um, I'm a, I like crime fiction. I like all of the TV shows. Um, and the most interesting ones are the ones where you watch them when they say, oh, this this has never happened here before, which is, which is <laughs> bull. Mm-hmm. It happens everywhere. So I don't, I don't um, think California gives me any more um, leverage to be a crime writer than any other place. It's just interesting because if, well, when I watch TV, a lot of the shows take place in New York, Chicago, maybe even Philadelphia. And they always portray these packed cities as being like sort of like the den of crime. And then a lot of shows in California, people are driving, actually that one shot where people are always driving through Beverly Hills with the, you know, the palm trees, (laughs) it's always sunny. Um, And so it has a different sort of portrayal. I, I think that's true. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it's the glitz, the, the glitz of it and the glamour of it. Um, but there's, you know, there are crazy people everywhere. There are selfish <laughs> people, there are greedy people. And all of that feeds into people who uh, commit crimes. Because, you know, I'm not writing about, you know, gangs or drug lords or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm writing about ordinary people who commit crimes. So to that end, can I ask you, so... Most of the writers I know have bounced back and forth between, let's say, full-time work and writing. Um, Most have not done it simultaneously, but when you started, you did both simultaneously. So what led you to take on the task of being a lawyer, which I've had that job and it's a full, like it's more than a full-time job. It It occupies your brain for a great part of the day, but also do that and choose to write a book. Because, see, I didn't really, uh, law came first. I mean, I, well, I shouldn't say that. Writing came first because I was a TV news writer for several years and then decided to go to law school. I went to, I was in law school during my 30s. I turned 30 my first year of law school. So law school was a delayed career for me. Um, I thought about law earlier on, but was really intimidated by the prospect. And then I kept meeting these lawyers that I didn't think were very bright and decided that <laughs> same for writing, but okay. Yeah. And it was, I, I like to say I owe my writing career to John Grisham because my, my stress relief during, uh, as a young associate at, I worked at O'Melvin and Myers for several years here in LA was picking up a John Grisham novel. And I enjoyed, um, the, 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 I enjoyed the, his thrillers and, but I would always finish them and with a dissatisfaction because there were no people in his books who looked like me. Mm-hmm. And it was just one day I decided that maybe I could write a legal thriller and I'd had this really interesting sexual harassment case and said, and so maybe I can turn this into a thriller and um, got up early one morning, like four o'clock in the morning. Cause you don't have a lot of time because when you're a young associate at a large firm, you're uh, almost a slave, but right. <laughs> So, um, and 
when I first sat down to write it, within minutes, I felt like I had discovered my passion. I mean, I this was like, okay, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, I enjoy the law, uh, sometimes more than others, but oh my God, sitting there at that desk and like that early in the morning. And so I made that my mission. I'd write before work, after work in airports. I volunteered for a six month assignment in Washington, DC, just so I'd be away from family and friends and I'd have nothing to do but work and go home and write. And um, that's how it all started. That's fascinating. Okay. I have, let me go back. Cause I have so many questions. I guess the first question is, okay. TV news writing, um, which is, um, I interned um, at TV news when I was in college and that's an, that's a whole, and it was the eighties. Oh my God. I'm so old. No, let's say the early nineties. <laughs> um, this is before digital everything. God, I'm dating myself, but what was it? What drew you to TV news? Because I, I always found TV news to be quite fascinating. But when I interned and we went out on all these, you know, went out to do these these stories, I don't know how I felt about it. I interviewed a lot of senators. That seemed to be the thing at the time. But I don't know how I felt about it as a job. But what made you decide to do TV news? Okay, and I was a news writer and associate and associate producer, so I was where I was never on the street. I was the one. So, right. um, and it was just sort of um, a fluke that I I wanted to be a journalist, but I I, I envisioned myself as a newspaper reporter, uh, mm-hmm. and in high school, college, you know, editor of news editor of newspapers, and in both in both high school and college, and even did some writing when I was in uh, in junior high school on the. Um, and so it was always newspaper, newspaper. And then I did this uh, uh, semester when I was, I was uh, went to undergrad at USC and I did this semester in Washington, D.C. And I was supposed to intern for the L.A. office of uh, the uh, Los Angeles Times or the D.C. office of the Los Angeles Times. And when I got there, it fell through. And I, they put me at the WJLA, which is the, I think, the ABC station there in D.C. And again, followed Followed another passion. When I finished that semester and came back and said, "No more newspapers. I want to be in TV," and that's where it um, all began. And then I went directly from USC. I, I did the one-year master's program at Northwestern at Medill School of Journalism, and from there got my first job at WXYZ TV in Detroit um, uh, with as a production assistant. But I was promoted to writer like in three months, and mm-hmm. um, I, I say my the, my, the combination of my being a news writer and a lawyer was the perfect opportunity to, to write commercial fiction. I mean, I am, I write very fast. I mean, I, 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 I see the story. I know how to punch it up. I know how to, you know, they, t- in, 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 if I'm giving a, a story and, and, and the producer says he wants it in 30 seconds, I got to boil it down and give it to the reader in a, a listener viewer in a spicy way. So that was like really great training. And also the news writing was, was before law school. So it was great training for law school because I could write very fast. And so exams, I think I felt like I had an a, an edge. I mean, I typed the bar exam or an electric typewriter if we're dating ourselves. So oh, I did. I had one too. I had to carry it around. I had a portable one. Good grief. Okay. Uh, <laughs> did, you, did you enjoy the TV news? Because one of the things that I found interesting, I guess, when I was interning was the, 
the moving around to move up. So people would move to like this small station and that small station. And, you know, when I was interning, I was in Boston, but it was like, they would move from, oh, I'd been in Springfield and now I'm in Boston. Then I'm going to go to DC or then they, they were always constantly moving to move markets, which seemed, it was the same with radio. It seemed not such a lonely existence, but a little itinerant in the beginning. That was definitely the requirement if I had wanted to, to move up to be a producer and to go that route. And um, I didn't have, you know, I, 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 you know, I was an associate producer, meaning I'm the right hand of the producer. I, that's only a couple times that I was, I produced, I, t- I produced like the early morning five minute segment and I was not very good at it. I was not. And the times when I was able to filled in for the longer segments, I was not good at it because the pressure of, of the anchors are, are, are they're talking over it and you got to figure out what else you're going to cut because you only got a half an hour and you got to be out and hit those commercial breaks. And it was just very stressful for me. I, but I liked, I liked writing. I liked writing the intros for the anchors. I'd liked writing for the reporters. The writing part was fine, but the producing part, the, the stress of being a television news producer, it wasn't for me. And after about, I think it was six, seven years of of TV news, that's when I decided to go to law school. And I'd had a real bad day in the newsroom. And I thought about law school for a long time and just never did anything about it. And I had like a bad day. The tape didn't come up. A producer yelled at me. And it's just like a bad day. And that's when the day I said, I'm going to law school. And I picked up the phone and I found out what I needed to do. There was no, uh, you didn't, you can go online. There was no online. This was 1986. Right. Yeah, my first year of law school was 87. So and I had three weeks to go get a, you know, bar exam, LSAT study guide and study for the bar LSAT. And from there, I went to UC Berkeley and never looked back. I So did you, okay, I have so many questions. And you were an associate. I I was never a law associate um, at a big firm. My ex-husband was, so I did, I lived with that. And many, many, many of my friends were how did you like that grind or did you like that grind? Or, I mean, for most people, I know it was a means to an end. They either became partner or they were going to go somewhere else in house or pay off their loans as it were when I went left. So it was always a means to an end, but it's a long slog to get to that next level. How did you manage the, oh my God, the, the, the sheer amount of hours that you have to work? Yeah. Um, you know, it was, I think it's looking back on it, there are times when I enjoyed it. There are times when it was too much. I mean, I was in the I was in the employment group. I practiced employment law, so I mean, there were cases that I had that were just very interesting: sexual harassment, discrimination, etc. And I loved the part of getting a new case, interviewing the client, digging into the facts, trying to build a defense. Did the, did my client really do this, or did my client didn't do this? This is a case we have to settle. So that that whole thing, I enjoyed that, and I kind of now that I'm not practicing anymore. I kind of miss part of it, but just like with, with law, I mean, there's a, I mean, just like with the TV news after a while, there's a little burnout. And then there was burnout with the, with the long hours in the law firm and all of that. So I transitioned from a large law firm to in-house, which uh, first went to Raytheon company for, I think a year. And then I went to Toyota for the last, what, 15 years of my career. And it was being an in-house lawyer, I think is the best legal job out there. I really enjoyed people I worked with. I enjoyed the cases. It was rarely stressful. So a lot. That's not true for all companies, but Toyota was a really unique company, and uh, I would do it all again. And I and yeah. Did you work in Torrance then? 
I had to think yeah. about that. I worked, okay. with, yeah, worked in Torrance for all my 15 years. And how I did in-house, but very, very briefly, as I've, as I've done all things. Um, I have a <laughs> short span. I didn't mind it. I will say that. I didn't mind it. It was low stress. It was low key. I, I did um, real estate in-house. It was very low stress. Um, and I didn't mind. Actually, and that's when I started writing. So I could do both at the same time. I think if I had been an associate, I would not at a firm, I would not have had the time. So did you write, so when you were getting up early, that's back when, that's when you were doing the in-house work. No, I was getting up early at the, I don't know if you admire Oh my God, that's right. You did say that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's- Twitter was a very supportive environment to be a writer. It was amazing. Um, cause we had every other Friday off cause they had a 980 schedule. So that, mm-hmm. um, I just had a very supportive management team. You know, the day my first book went out, um, first book was released, I took the day off to celebrate, right? And my secretary calls me and says, we just had a department meeting and the, and the general counsel put your website up on the screen and told everybody about your book, you know? Oh, that's when, cool. I won, when I won the Image Award, the general counsel, another general counsel called PR and said, you need to do an article on her in the company newsletter. I mean, it was just a very supportive environment. And then when I was overwhelmed at some point, <laughs> writing and working, um, um, it was my boss who suggested I go part-time when I said I wanted to quit. I was like, I can't, I, is that, is that an option? I never thought to ask to, to cut from, to go to, you know, three days a week or two and a half days a week or whatever it was. They offered me that. So, um, and I tell people that when you have a passion and you have another, and you have a day job, make sure you do your day job well, because had I been blowing off the law stuff for the writing, they never would have asked me to work part-time because obviously they considered me a valuable asset to the department mm-hmm. and um i never thought to ask to go part-time because nobody in the law was working part-time in our legal department so i just look back and say i ended up really in the right place you did that's that is amazing support um that that is amazing although to be honest my boss was very kind he was like he was like, you know, when it's downtime, he's like, you should do something else. And I was like, oh, I like to write. He was like, then you should do that. Um, so I did have a very supportive, maybe maybe the law is not as bad as I think. I'll have to think about that. But okay, so the first book, was the first book you wrote the first book you published? No. The first okay. book I wrote was the second book I published. Um, the first book about the sexual harassment case, Infirm Pursuit, um, was, all, was the one I got all the rejections on and, you know... Um, and but didn't give up and um, learn, you know, John Grisham got 45 rejection letters and people told him nobody wanted to read about lawyers. And he wrote um, The Firm was his right. second book. And so I started writing another book. And by that time, I'd taken some writing courses and discovered um, somebody gave me my first James Patterson book, Roses Are Red. A co-worker at Toyota said, oh, this is somebody I read. You really like them. And I read Roses Are Red by James Patterson in one day. And I don't read books in one day. I'm not a, I'm not, just not a real fast reader. And I was like amazed and intrigued about why did I read this book in one day? And I just went back and looked at it and it was very short chapters, hook at the beginning, a hook at the end, and there was always movement forward. And I took that, those concepts. And I also um, I took a one day writer's course and the instructor said, take a book that's that's in your genre and outline it. And I outlined John Grisham's The Firm. And those things about story structure helped me write that second book. And it was a book that that um, 
got three agents interested in it and was got my first offer in like three or four months. So um, I think we need to go through that 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 first experience because I just started writing when I first started. I didn't know about any. I didn't know about story structure. I didn't know. I didn't know about voice. Mm-hmm. I learned that along the way. So wait, what did you? What did you major in in college? I guess I it's- broadcasting and my uh, undergrad was journalism and, and the second um, and my master's was broadcasting. But I never thought a word about being a, a, a novelist. It just never crossed my mind until John. I got tired of reading John Grisham with nobody in the books who <laughs> like me. I wish is- I had have gotten a liter- a degree in English and a, you know a, you know. Oh. That would have changed my whole writing style because my writing style is commercial. It's just I'm a news writer. I'm I'm short and to the point. I'm not all flowery, and that's I think that's why that first book I tried to write sucked because I was trying to be Toni Morrison and describe the shadow on the wall and the mood and me. And so when I went back and and just wrote the story that I felt as a and not trying to be somebody I wasn't, and I I kind of found my voice. That is, that's fascinating. Um, okay, that's fascinating. I mean, I was an English major, so I can't speak on it because um, I have a completely different experience of reading so many different kinds of books, both for school and personally, that I wouldn't say I got a voice early. I don't know, to be frank, I don't think there's any shortcut. I don't think there's any, well, there's, a, okay, occasionally there are people who write that first thing and it's the thing. But for most of us, I think it's trial and error because we all come to it with, I guess, some preconceived notions of what a novel is, whether it's character driven or plot driven or flowery description or whatever that is. And I think we have to all meet in the middle if you want to sell a commercial book, you know, and figure out how to do that in our way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's all it's all past. It's actually quite fascinating um, when you think about it. So wow. So what's the name of the first book that you sold then? Uh, Every reasonable doubt. Okay, that's one um, I see all the time. <laughs> when I look on the bestseller um, free list, I'm always seeing where I am <laughs> and where everybody else is, depending on the day. Um, but what was it about that story that hooked you or hooked readers or hooked agents? What do you think it is about that that was a hook? Um, one, I mastered story structure. I think I just I just got it. I understood that you need to move it forward. I remember having a, a writing coach early on and she would say, well, this doesn't move the book forward. And I, I didn't really understand that. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had said to me, if you take this chapter out, do you still have a book? Oh. And that that would have registered more with me. It's weird how my brain works. But I, I get it now that, um, and, and I had a lot of superfluous nonsense in the first, uh, the version of my first book. Mm-hmm. I just didn't. I just didn't tell the story. I did the structure. To me, it was structure. I, I think the story in the first book was just as second book that well, the first book that I wrote that didn't sell initially was just as good. But I just didn't know how to structure it. Right. And I think that's what happens with a lot of new uh, beginning writers. You you got you have to master story structure. And one way to do that, I found, was just to really study other books you like, not just right. read them, but study how the story came together. And that experience of outlining the firm, I mean, I still have that that outline I was uh, in my files here and just 
Mitch meets with the partners and the partners, well, I'm going to come to Memphis. It's just a couple lines. And then I went through each chapter and it was some, somewhere in that process, there was a light bulb moment about how that story was told. My, I have a lot of friends in the movie. It's isn't a lot, but I know three or four of my close friends are, are in the film, movie, TV business. And their, their stuff is really structured. There's a structure for a movie. There's a structure for a sitcom. And, and, and I later learned that there is a structure for a novel, just a little less, not, not as structured, but it's there. Some things you have to do to engage the reader. And it took me some time to learn that. Although I will say this, I do think that the beauty of novel writing is that there's a little more play than there is in like a, an hour TV drama or a half hour sitcom. Those are very, very, very strictly structured. Yeah. Um, and it's very, because I know people who write, obviously, and it's very interesting how strict it is and how they have to, it's actually very interesting because they have to like, how can I say this, wedge their creativity into that structure. And, you know, the best shows are where the creativity meets the structure, yeah. but it's not easy. It's not, it's not, it's not easy. Um, convinced me to sign up for a, 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 a course on writing a TV drama at UCLA. And after the, I quit after the first day, cause I felt like I was being stuffed into a box and she was like, oh, quit now, let's do it. And I hated it. I hated it. And I was like, Nope, I'll stay with, with novels. I will say this though, because I know so many, I mean, I know many people who do this in some ways it's similar because if you watch like, especially with um, not necessarily stream, not ones that are written for streaming because they don't have the commercial break, but for those written for network, they do have to have that hook going out to the commercial and the hook coming back in from the commercial. And that to me is very fascinating. Streaming has different issues because there are no commercials, but um, which allows people more room, but then also then a lot of people do complain that stories drag. Um, but that's, it's very, it's very fascinating, the idea of structure, because I think what my perception of creative people is that we would all like to have far less structure, but structure is necessary because it's a reader consumer expectation. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's always, it's always that. So let me turn to, so I read this is many years. I read Every Reasonable Doubt, but this is not um, the most recent. But the other book, what is the title of your book on sex trafficking? I, should, I don't have my Kindle open. Anybody's Daughter. That's right. Um, so what, this is such a change of topic, but what possessed you to write that book? Um, I was having lunch with a friend and he was saying that girls were being trafficked in South LA. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This was well, maybe two ten to 11. And I'm like, you know, I said, no, I mean, in my mind at that point, that happens in, I don't know, Russia, the Philippines, I, I other places it didn't happen here. And he said, no, no, I'm telling you the gangs are trafficking girls, blah, blah, blah. And I left that lunch and did some, started looking online and it was there. It was, there was, and I'm like, why isn't anybody talking about this? And it's just amazing to me. And that story just came to me. Um, I just, it, it, it was, it just came to me. I, I wish I could do that again. <laughs> <laughs> we all have, we all have exactly. a magical book. The other two were, were work. The rest were work, but to that and failure to protect those two stories just came to me. 
It's so funny because every author I know um, has a magical book. I have one and I wish they were all like that, but unfortunately um, doesn't work that way, at least for me. Maybe every, maybe there's some person for whom all the books are magical. I would like to meet them. (laughs) (laughs) But what, so what was, let me ask you this. What was the reader reaction to that? It was very good. It was very, um, people were surprised. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I mean, I still do, tra- I'm talking about uh, trap. That's the book that keeps on giving. I mean, I'm doing a next week. I'm doing a, a panel discussion on trafficking next month for the LA County department of health. I'm doing a panel on trafficking. So it, it turned me into an anti-trafficking av- advocate and I'm always asked to talk about it and provide books. And so it's, um, it's still an issue. I think COVID, it sort of pushed it to the forefront. I mean, I was doing a lot more talking about it then, and I've seen changes. Um, when I first started, uh, those, uh, a, a, a minor picked up for trafficking was going to go to jail. Today, right. today, she's a victim. She's not. I mean, anybody under 18 is, a, is not. They're not treated that way. And I tell people that there's no such thing as a child prostitute. They are sexually exploited children, period. And... Um, and, and, and we, you know, we, 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 we look at those girls out there and uh, who are walking the, the, the tracks or wh- wherever we see them and we think, oh, well, they want to do that. And then, no, 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 no. And I think you got to look at what brought them there. And it's, it's a, it could be a number of things. Most, most adult women who are, who are in the sex, in, in, a, in this quote unquote sex industry, I don't like that word, um, uh, were abused as children. I mean, we need to look be, behind uh, the screen and have some compassion because it's 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 a problem. No, I, I'm thinking about well, I'm thinking about two things because I have friends who did advocacy around sex trafficking um, with the California legislature. I want to say, oh my God, maybe 15 years ago. Um, it's a it's a bit back, but it was different. I think here and in New York, because New York was very heavily, especially in the 90s and maybe the early 2000s, into prosecuting children for children, girls, young girls mainly, um, for sex crimes. And there, and it was super, I don't want to say interesting. It was, I don't know if the word ironic is right, but often the girls, like 13, 14, 15 year old girls, were, had greater sentences and greater punishment than the men who sought them out. Yep, it was, and I can't unsee this. I I once saw something about this, and they had these men. They would sit in these. They would do, they were prosecuted for misdemeanors, and I don't know if that's changed primarily. And they would have these room. It was like the one day traffic court sort of thing wow. where they would sit in these rooms. John schools. I mean, I can't right. understand that they have John schools. I mean, yes. what, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> I. I I actually saw a video of one once and I don't have any words for that. So, um, cause I just really don't. Um, but they, and they would, it was like a slap on the wrist and it was, I don't want to say it was like a wink and a nudge cause it was not quite that, but it felt like that while they're telling the other side of the story that these girls were awful and they should be put in jail and all these, you know, things, the more punishment aspects of our society applying to minors who is, especially when you hear their stories are not necessarily voluntarily there. You know, I don't know the number of 13 year olds who get up and go, this is the thing that's going to be. It's always, well, coercion, persuasion, sometimes, yeah. you know, just yeah. that kind of thing. And I wish, well, I have a lot of wishes, but 
when you're talking to people about it, are they, how can I say this? Do they support the idea that children are being exploited? Because it's, it's always, it's children versus like the punitive nature of our society to punish people for crimes. I think they do. Because usually I'm, I'm lucky enough to have often speak with um, a victim. Mm-hmm. When a victim tells her story, you get it. Right. You get how they ended up there. One, I'm speaking on a panel next month with somebody who was um, who was a runaway from home because she was being abused by a, fam- a family member, and her mother didn't believe her, and she ran away. She met this guy who said, "Oh, you know, oh, this rainy, get in the car with me." And then, you know, um, then she's groomed for a few months, and then she's out on the street. I mean, today she's a anti-trafficking advocate helping save others. But you have to understand how this happens. And, you know, we're, we're um, think about the situation where we've seen the situation where a teacher dates a student. That's called, that's what makes she says she, she, she's 16 and she's like, I love my teacher. I'm going to run away with him, and blah, blah, blah. When that, that, and she, and she's in she's in love with as in love with that teacher as many of these girls think they're in love with their pimps. Mm-hmm. And when that situation is caught, that uh, teacher goes to jail, loses his job, and that girl gets help. But in the situation where uh, a girl's picked up for trafficking, that girl is vilified. I mean, it's changing, mm-hmm. it's changing, and that and that pimp. Um, used to get a slap on the wrist there there there's more attention to it now and there's more there's stiffer facilities and some some guys are even getting life in prison i mean they're few but it's it's happening so but it's not stemming the tide i i interviewed a, a pimp once a young guy um uh, he wouldn't interview me with me in person uh but through my connections he agreed to talk to me on the phone he was 24 years old two parent home um said he did it um, for money, said he's gonna trying to save enough money to open a bar. Said that you will never stop it because my my clients are doctors and lawyers and judges and cops, and the girls will tell you that as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and until you start, until we start punishing the the buyer, you're, I don't think you are gonna stop it. You gotta punish the buyer like we punish the pimp, and we're not ready to do that because many of the people who are uh, who are buying sex are judges, lawyers, doctors, and politicians. So, right. No, it's interesting because one of the things I, I talked about, not talked about, when I was writing books on trafficking, there's two. Um, one of the things that the pimp in the book talks about is that it's a way to make money and the repercussions are not nearly as dire as if he were trafficking in coke or, you know, large quantities of marijuana and all of that. Exactly. So all the life sentences and enhancements and, you know, federal sentencing guidelines that come along with that are far more onerous um, than sex uh, being a pimp or a trafficker. Right, right. And then, and, and there's also the issue of the girls may not, may be afraid to testify against them. Right. Or may think they're in love and they don't want to testify against them. And then, so it's, it's a hard crime to prosecute, but, you know. There are there are people out there who are trying. Yeah, no, it's it's. I don't know. I spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not that will shift, but I don't. I don't know where we are now politically. That doesn't seem to be at the forefront. But you were saying it, it came up more during COVID. Were, were there was there more attention to that then? No, I think there was less attention. 
Okay. Uh, COVID hit and nobody cared about that. We were all consumed with COVID, but people were still out there buying sex. I hadn't thought about it. Believe it or not. I'm thinking I was at home because that was it, and but other people were not. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to really, I'm going to have to put that one in my head because um, I hadn't thought about the things that you couldn't. So for, for people who have compulsions or whatever, their desires are greater than their worry about COVID. I guess they continued on. Huh. Okay. Okay. I'll have to think about that. Um, so I had a question a few months ago. I'm not so good with time. Your, there was a reading of one of your books. Um, yeah, that was at a theater cool. near here, and I really wanted to go, but I was at a different theater. Um, I was at the Geffen, which is you know far on the west side, and driving back is not perfect. But the theater that you were at is actually really close to where I live. What? How did that come about? And what was the book they did the reading of? They did anybody? No, they did Fairy to Protect, and a few years ago they did Anybody's Daughter. It's about it's the um oh god I'm the Town Street Town Street Theater Group. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, my first book, Anybody's Daughter, was the first book that they did a stage reading of. And it was so cool to see the characters come alive like that. Um, and they just, I don't know, called me up and said, we'd like to, to use your book to start our stage reading um, series. And then a few years later, they did also did um, Failure to Protect. So it was a cold call? Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, the phone rings 90% of the time. It's somebody trying to sell me something. So I'm just always, uh, that's, that would be a, a heck of a call. What did well, you... Well, I think it was a cold email. I'm sorry. Oh. Like somebody emailed me about it. I mean, through my website. Yeah. That's fascinating. How was the one I missed? Um, the one a few months ago. So how... Seeing the characters come to life is interesting, but how did they do the reading? Because, you know, books are not plays, um, even if they're dialogue heavy. So how did they do that adaptation? To... They, did, they did most of the, they did dialogue, right? Okay. And there was also a, a narrator who might, might read things, but they did a great job of communicating the story because people in the audience who hadn't read the book, they got it, you know? Wow. And um, it was really, yeah, it's just, it was a really cool experience. And you've done it twice. So that's that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I want to check my email now. Maybe magic will come that way. What? Um, and then, okay. So the you other know, thing is. About that, let me go back. Because I, I've done so many book clubs. I think one of the book club members had a, con, was a, had a connection to Town, Town Street. So I think she brought the book to them. Ah. So, I mean, yeah. I think that was how. Yeah. It's just, it is, it's fascinating because it, it, I've seen a lot of stage readings, but it, they're usually not adaptations of books. So it's, um, they're usually actually plays in development, to be frank. Um, so that's the last one I saw maybe last year. But it's interesting. It's a very interesting idea. And now that I think about it, I wish it happened more often because I think I like novels and I like story structure of novels. And I think, and I also love plays, but I think that the merger of the two was probably a very good idea. Um, so you reminded me of something because I there's also when I did I, one of my books uh, I can't remember which one maybe it was lawful uh, I think it was lawful deception for the for my book signing for my release party I uh, had like you know five or six of the of the um, actors acted out at my book release party and that was really cool and I think I'd made a donation to the uh, to the theater and they agreed to do that for me so. 
That is, I'm going to do that again too. (laughs) Okay. That is fascinating because I've never seen such a thing. I mean, I, I mean, I've had, I mean, I've seen authors, you know, many, many times read passages um, from their book or people talk about their careers, you know, separately, but not a reading. That is, that is actually a really, really interesting idea. Especially in LA would be much more feasible than other places. That's okay. I'm you all sorts of things I have never thought about uh, nor seen, but that's a really great idea. What okay? So how did the NAACP Image Award come about? Because that's a huge deal. Um, for, for- I was just talking to uh, my my then publicist was, was Ella Curry, and I was just talking and, and I was just talking to her yesterday. You know, we um, when she read the um, the advanced copy of Anybody's Daughter because that was um, a self published book, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, "You should submit this for the Image Award." And I'm like. Mm, I don't think so. Because then I went, looked at the prior winners and they were all published, I mean, all traditional publishers and I didn't do it. And then she um, called me later. She was like, the deadline's coming up. You need to submit the book. And she was like, really, really quickly. And I was like, well, it's like, I'm not going to win. You're self-published. She's like, I don't care. Submit it. And then when it, you know, then the nominations came out and that was up against what, Walter Mosley, oh, Terry McMillan, Sister Soldier, and Victoria Christopher Murray were all traditionally published. I'm like, well, I don't have a chance. It's nice to be nominated. And then when I won, it was like, wow. And I, you know, and I, my, my boyfriend's always telling me that I don't dream big enough or I don't, you know, and and I always thank Ella that had she not pushed me, I would have never submitted the book in the first place. Because um, mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, and, and, and this was, this was 2013 because, you know, self-publishing was still kind of, you know, I still mumbled under my breath that I was self-published because, <laughs> you know, my first two were traditionally published and my third book couldn't, couldn't, was turned down by eight publishing houses. We had that many back then. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I was like, you know, I was embarrassed about being self-published and I'm not anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what, what made you, well, I'll ask you about the image award in a second, but what made you make the leap to self-publishing? Because, well, many, okay, many people have many different reasons for why they did it, but what was yours? I, um, was my third book didn't get picked up by the current publisher. And then I got a new agent, which was a really big publishing house. I mean, that publishing house at the time represented um, Sue Grafton. I was like, okay, this is it. This is my big hit. He couldn't right. sell it. And he wanted me to put Murder on a Download on the shelf and write something else. And I thought to myself, no, this is a good book. I'm going to self-publish it. And I read about everything I needed to do. And and this was there was no Kindle Direct Publishing back then. This was go to a, go to a company and have them print up wow. 500 and send it to your house. And there was no on-demand, you know. And so this was 2007, six or seven. Wow. And, um, but I believed in the book and some great things happened from that book that confirmed that because the independent publishers group gave it, uh, um, um, picked it up and did, gave me a distribution deal. So it was actually in a few stores. A friend of mine down, she called me from Chicago, called me excited. I seen your book in, in the store for 2007. That was a big deal to be in a store as a self-published author. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, and here in, I, I live in um, LA and in Marina del Rey, the Barnes and Noble, I had walked in there and it was on the shelf and up front as a staff pick. 
And I was like, this is amazing from a book that the agents had put on the shelf. And so from then on, I didn't look back. And over the years, I just, I wanted, I wanted to return to traditional publishing. As a matter of fact, um, uh, a publishing house reached out to me saying Mm -hmm. right before anybody's, right before anybody's daughter came out and said, you know, have anything interesting? What are you, you know, working on? I told, I sent them anybody's daughter and um, their offer was so pitifully low. I said, hell Mm -hmm. no. And it was amazing (laughs) because the month after I won the image award, I made what their advance was that month. Mm -hmm. So, and I have not looked back from there. So. No, I think, well, many of us have a similar story. I think I remember my first, the royalties I got on the first day from Amazon exceeded my previous six months. You know, you got the royalty saved with six months in the, six months in arrears and it exceeded that. And I thought, oh, well, this is different. <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is, this, this is different. It was, um, it was an interesting well, money talks, and it was—it's very interesting. I don't yeah. know. Well, traditional publishing—it's its own thing now, and we could have. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. What? So, after winning the, what was it like winning the Image Award? Because that's—I don't. You know, most people. Let me say this. Maybe Tara McMillan would have expected it. <laughs> um, maybe I don't know. But did it feel hugely unexpected? Oh, it did. It did to me. Um, And it was, it opened a lot of doors. I mean, it it opened a lot of doors and it gave me some confidence to keep going and I was doing the right thing and that I could take charge of my own career. And that was the biggest gift it gave me Um, because I have not been self-published since then. I do have a book coming out uh, that I co-wrote with Dwayne Alexander Smith. It'll be out next June, I hope, that we wrote a detective series. But, um, you know, because he was, he's, Rep, he was represented, and he we, we were with um, against. Oh yes, I'm an interester, um, Atrius. So I'll be back in traditional publishing with that book, but I also have something out later this year. I hope under my own um, under my own name. So we'll see. I plan to I I, I plan to do both. So we'll see. No, a lot of people are um, hybrid. I mean, it's I mean it. it it can really work as long as the deadlines don't clash. That's actually the biggest problem most people I know have. Or they have a deal that um, doesn't allow them to publish as often as they might like. But those are those are contractual issues and timing yeah. issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, so since so did you? What was it like? I don't want to say quitting, but leaving the law to write. Was it a hard decision? No, I couldn't wait. <laughs> But but looking back, I think I would have probably written more if I still had a job because I wrote, I see, I don't know, nine, ten books, uh, might be more than that, while I was working. And so I've only published two. I've been, I left in 2016 and I had one, I did one, um, I did Failure to Protect, so I did. I went, and what I'm saying is, I haven't written as much now that I'm I, now that I'm full time writer. But COVID <laughs> part of that because my last book came out at two nineteen, and then COVID, so I didn't get any publicity or do any hit the road at all in two twenty, and here we are two twenty three. So, but I took the the first year off. The first year I was struggling to write, and it was funny. My minister said, 
you know, just give yourself a break. You know, you, you've been doing, you've been working since I was 16 in some job or another. I've never had more, I had a month off. You know, you think about all the things you do, a month where you don't have to do anything. So I did, I took a year off and then started dabbling again. But I, I don't write with the, I, I have not written with that kind of urgency since I, since I became full time because you don't, you, when you don't have, when you, when you don't have time, you use the time you have effectively. But um, I'm, I've been, I've been reading the uh, Miracle Mornings and. Ah, uh, uh, yes. How, how Elrod, this. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, uh, and I'm, and this is what, day 16 for me. And it's, it's amazing about the, the mindset and the intention and the, you know, the affirmations and the visualization. I'm, I think there might be something to this. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying, I get up at 530 and I'm excited to begin my morning that way. And it's really cool. That's fascinating. I there are a lot of people. What is the Hal Elrod book? And then also, I think Mel Robbins. They spend a lot of time talking about the. How can I say this? Your choices and establishment morning routine um, can affect your entire day. Oops, I. I don't know. I don't have a routine, but I'm not that person. I um, but I managed to write books despite having zero routine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every day is a grab bag in my life. What um. So given that, what are your future writing plans? Like what, how do you see your career developing going forward? Do you want to do more co-writing? Do you want to do more traditional publishing? Do you want to remain hybrid? What, how do you see the shape of your career future, I guess? I like the co-writing thing with Dwayne. And we're, um, we're, we envision it as a series. Uh, Our final, our, our final edits are due for my editor are due April 1st. So I'm going to then turn back to the book that I was working on by myself. And um, I'd like to get back to producing at least a book a year. Um, and, you know, there's, I got people shopping a couple of books for, for movie stuff and, and we'll see what that turns out and uh, just go from there. Okay. Uh, how can I ask you this? How did you like co-writing people? Let me say this. I have a friend who actually primarily co-writes and um, she's co-written with different people and sometimes it works well, but sometimes it doesn't. I've known people who write, they each write different chapters, they each write different characters. One writes and then the other corrects. How did you find co-writing? Because I find it so very solitary and it's all in my head that I don't know how I would share that with another person. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it. One, our writing styles are the same, so that made it easy. Um I think um, um, he called me and said, I got a great idea. We should write it together. And when I heard the idea, I was like, that is a great idea. I'm in. And he did the primary outline, right? And then I fit into it. And then so he would write a chapter, send it to me. I would feed off of it, still based on the outline, and send it back. And we went back and forth. And we, it didn't take us very long. I would think if we, if you, you know, not counting the gaps in between when we weren't writing, we probably did that book in three or four months. Um, because we're, uh, again, our writing styles are the same. We're short, quick, commercial fiction, drive the book along. And I'm really excited about what's uh, the what's going to happen with it. And I hope the, I hope the publisher gives it a good push because I think it'll be, a, it'll be something readers will like. That is fascinating, the idea. So do you, okay, let me ask you this because I don't do this either. Have you plotted your books? Are you a plotter? I am definitely a plotter. I am an outliner from beginning to end. I wow. can, I cannot just free freeform. 
and I've tried. It's a waste of time. <laughs> I, I I only freeform. I actually I don't. I the idea of an outline makes my head hurt. Like I just couldn't plan. I don't have an outline for my life, much less a book. What? <laughs> I can't even. So you know what's going to happen at the end of the book when you start? Yes. Sometimes that changes, but I know where it's going. And sometimes if I if I if I'm struggling with the end, I'll just forget about it and just write, and it'll come somewhere in the end. It it comes. Do you let? Well, okay. So you have tried the <laughs> tried pantsing, and so you found my first, book, my first book was a pantser, but I didn't know know what I was doing. So. Wow. So how did you, let me say this, because one of the things that uh, one of my talk to writers, we spend a lot of time talking about is how we came to the process we have now. Would you say it was difficult or did you figure out your writing process fairly early on? When, uh, after that first book, and then Mm -hmm. that instructor said, take a book that's like yours and outline it. And then when I studied how James Patterson's books come together, I, I said, I need an outline. And that's when I outlined uh, every reasonable doubt. Okay. Wow. So you, okay. You learned quickly. I did not learn so quickly. Um, That's so interesting because I, I think, well, I don't know everybody's first book. I had a writing uh, instructor who was not a, I don't know what you'd call her structure. She just wrote all the different parts of the book and then would sit down and put all the pages on her floor and then try to arrange them into a book. And that was her suggestion. I still, I think I may be so mad about that to this day. I think I was, my head almost exploded at the idea of doing that. And I'll never do that again, ever. But um, it was, I, like, I have, I'm a disorganized thinker and I know that, but that was way more disorganized than even I think. So I just start at the beginning of the book and write to the end um, mm-hmm. while figuring out as I go along. Um, what is your writing life like? I mean, do you write every day? Do you have a certain word count? How is it that you structure it? Um, I try to, I, I don't write every day. I, I, I did a, last year I did a panel with Michael Connolly and he said he writes every day, even on vacations, every day. And I was like, oh, I gotta go home and try to write every day. It does not work for me. So, um, but I, I like long writing stretches. Um, there's sometimes when I, 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 I want to write 5,000 words. If I can, if I can do 5,000 words, I'll feel like I accomplished something. Um, and through NaNoWriMo, I, that was my goal and I did accomplish it. And, um, but I, 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 I know the day before that I'm going to get up early to write. I mean, I'm thinking about it. And, um, and I had a long slump, like last year, I didn't do much of anything. I just dibbled and dabbled here. I wasn't, I didn't, I was just COVID tired. (laughs) (laughs) My parents are both 91. Thank God they're still active and and stuff, but I, you know, that requires doctor's appointments, things like that and, um, hanging out with them. So, but, um, this is a good time for me now because I'm, I'm celebrating this month, all month, I'm celebrating my birthday. It's my 65th birthday. Mm-hmm. And I just came back from a, I rented a, a three-bedroom condo on the beach in Carlsbad last week. And I invited four of my girlfriends and we hung out for five days and acted like 16-year-olds. I ate everything in sight. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm back and I'm celebrating all month. My bachelor birthday is not until um, Saturday. Okay. Um, I've just got things I'm doing and just sort of mentally preparing to enjoy myself this month and then just get back into it. 
Well, I will say happy birthday. Um, March birthdays, man. And um, actually, I was just in, I was in Carlsbad in uh, January with a lot of writers, and we did eat everything there, too. Um, <laughs> um, and shockingly, the, the food prices were a lot, even restaurant prices were a lot less than L.A. It was fascinating for being so close. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> what? So it's interesting that you're just thinking about that. I... Yeah, I don't know. It's I. I'm a write everyday person. And I do write on vacation. So um, wow, I'm I jealous. <laughs> have have a laptop. Will travel. I my primary goal is finding hotel rooms with a safe that my laptop fits in, so I can write and then put it in the safe and then go sightseeing or whatever. Um, but I do take it every single place. Took it to Panama. Took it to Denmark. I'll take it anywhere. Um, and write then, I and I can like move going away. I do like going away to write. I have a timeshare in Palm Springs and I just like driving down there and spending three or four days and just, I used to write pre-COVID in the, my Panera bread and it, my, my little corner and I would stay there four hours. I would eat two, two meals. So <laughs> but, um, it's something about getting away. Even though I spent a lot of money painting my office and putting inspirational words on the wall. Um, I do like writing away from home too. That's it's interesting. I do actually. I only write it well. Other than traveling, I do only write at home. But I find that so I have like a you know an Aeron chair and a very like ergonomic setup and two monitors and all that. And I mostly write anywhere else other than there. It's quite quite interesting. Um, although I do try to do promotion work there because I think it's better probably for, to be sitting up and not destroying my body as it ages. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about was the one book that you did on natural hair. So what inspired that? Just um, having some challenges with my hair and then meeting a friend who had gone natural and just seeing how her hair had grown and how she took pride in her natural hair. And so I finally did the got up nerve to do the big chop and I love it. I mean, I, it's, it's, and I wanted to, even though the book's kind of outdated now, I need to update it, but yes, um, I'd like to lead more women my age to natural hair. Cause I just think it's just, I love the beauty of my nappy hair and I wasn't raised to feel that way about it, but I love it now. So when you were working, did you, oh my God, I haven't thought about it cause I don't, I've had natural hair for many, many years, but did you, um, I guess, perm, straighten, or do something with your hair? My yeah. early career, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in more recent, yeah. Before that, I mean, I would wear braids um, mm -hmm. a lot. But um, yeah, I had straight hair. Uh, I had weaves before. It's like, no, I have the greatest hair. I love my hair now. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. So what, I went, maybe you were raised, so I had, well, perms until I was third. No, until I graduated from college. Maybe law school. I'd have to actually think about it. And then I did the big chop when I actually I wrote an essay that was published about it, I think, in the Cleveland Plain Dealer back then. Um, but I um, I cut off my hair and then I had natural hair from the mid 90s on. I haven't had any chemical treatment since then. Um, but I it was a lot maintaining it. I think that's the thing I didn't yeah. like in my early years. I spent every Saturday at the beauty parlor. And it was like an all-day thing. And I I think I hit my limit, maybe my mid-20s. I was like, I can't continue doing this. And I don't miss it at all. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't miss it at all. Yeah. Yep. It goes a long way. To, I still have to Pasadena to get my hair done. Oh, my God. Not anymore. 
<laughs> do you that it's interesting because I was talking to somebody, we were talking about the Crown Act, I don't know why. And did you find let me ask you this, because I, I wonder about this. Um, did you find it necessary, do you think, to have straight hair in order to succeed in corporate America? I didn't. Um, um, but I and that's like the Crown Act is so I mean, like, why do we have to even why do we even need it? It's just ridiculous. But mm-hmm. but we do need it because people make judgments. But I remember when I was interviewing for my job at Toyota, and this would have been 2001, and a fr- I had braids. My friend says, oh, so you're going to take your braids out for the interview? I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. Well, resume doesn't speak for me, then this isn't the place for me. And I didn't. I didn't. And she thought it was like a big deal for me to interview in my braids. That's like I had them sticking 50 minutes. I had them in a bun in the back of my head. What the? Right. Get over it. So and it, wasn't, it wasn't an issue. <laughs> That is interesting because um, in that time span that you're actually talking about, I had friends. So I was in-house back then. And when my friends were looking to move from whatever, one in-house to another, especially, I think this is back then, they were looking to move to tech. So it was eBay, Yahoo, Google, but the early ages of those, um, most of my friends would wear a wig to the interview. It's crazy. Um, It's crazy that we even have to think that. It's so sad. And then they would, so it was always the debate. So they were going to wear a wig for the interview and then whether or not there was going to be an issue when they showed up with their natural hair for the job. Um, and I will say that some of the tech companies, it was an issue and some it wasn't. Wow. But it was, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, a lot of friends who left, you know, left, you know, you during the, the second tech boom, I guess, because there was a bust and then maybe 20, 2004 or whatever, they left LA because the tech jobs were up in, you know, the Bay Area. So they left, but we, there was a lot of flying up wearing wigs and then whether or not or when to take off the wig when they had the job. That was a huge consideration. Although when I was in-house, I had, I must have had natural hair. I think I probably had a short afro um, the whole time. And now that you think about it, I never thought about it because I didn't think to change my hair. There were no issues. I guess I got the job and I kept them. Yeah. I, I was now I'm thinking about it. I had never, I didn't have time to think. Like it just wasn't the thing I was thinking about. Yeah. I just, I was going to show up and if they weren't going to hire me, they weren't going to hire me. Maybe that was an issue I hadn't uh, considered. Um, but I never thought about it for myself. I did see other people think about it, but not for myself so much. But I don't think I cared that deeply. Because yeah. um, I was always like, yeah, but when I get back to writing. So I was sort of thinking about what I was going to do in the future. And I was working to pay off law school loans, to be frank. Um, that was my, if I could get out of debt, then I could write. And that was my primary focus. I don't think I was thinking much about my hair. But now I'm going to actually call my friends and ask them about it now that, you, that I just thought about it. So since you, so you have your future mapped out. This is interesting. So you know what's coming. And has your writing changed, do you think, um, during the last more decade or more than decade? I hope I'm better. Um, my writing style hasn't changed, I don't think. But Do you go back and read the old books? I was just talking to somebody about this and she oh, went back and she read the old book. Oh, I was like, why did I use that word? I could have written it so much better. Oh, it's a experience to read an old book. Oh. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's an interesting experience. Experience because I think I had a writing coach who was like, well, because I was talking to her about I had the feelings I had about old books and I'm I'm not going to go back and rewrite them because I don't have that kind of time or interest to be honest. But she was saying that if you have followed writers who've written, you know, long time, 
like Michael Conley or Elizabeth George or any ton of French, I don't know. If you follow writers that have written for a number of years across a number of books, their books have improved. And she's like, but do you ever go back and judge them for the first books? And I always think, well, no, their books improved over time. And I guess that's an expectation. I don't have a different expectation that their books would be completely consistent over time. Um, And the improvement is actually for some of them quite welcome because they've expanded the kinds of things they write about. And I find it quite fascinating, but it's, it is sometimes hard to go back and look, but I do, I think we all hope that we get it. We're getting better or better at storytelling. I'll say that. Yep. 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 So the last question I'll ask you is, do you think there's um, one theme that comes through all your books? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know that I, I definitely haven't intentionally um, put a theme in. I mean, but I've, I mean, I've tried to write about women who I think who are strong. Um, I I always want to try to educate the reader about something. I would like you to, to, to learn something that you didn't know after reading one of my books. Um, um, But I don't know that I've way, you know, weaved a thread, a theme, particular theme through them. I just wanted, I wanted to write the kind of women um, that I didn't see reading when I started writing that weren't, I didn't see them, especially not lawyers. All of my books contain lawyer, featured lawyers. So, Well, let me ask you this. Do you think there are, and I'd have to, I don't even know. I read anything. Do you think that there are more women of color or lawyers of color, or at least even black women in uh, thrillers and crime fiction nowadays than there were before? Because now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I have to think about that. No, I mean, there's a character here and there. I don't I don't know anybody, and maybe I should know. Are there other um, author, Black authors writing female series with uh, Black women? Lawyers? I, nobody. Other than myself. Let me think. The answer is yes, but I'd have to think, not off the top of my head. Um, The answer is yes. I I think I'll include those in the show notes for sure. But the answer is yes. But are there many? You know, I have a reader who emailed me and she said there are not many. Um, I don't know who they are. I mean, I'm, you know, um, I I read lots of stuff. So if after this call, please email me. That's a few names. Okay, well, check them out. Yours as well. Okay, I, I know you're, but <laughs> yes, but my protagonists are not the. Oh, we're not going to get into it. The protagonist from my first series is a white woman. All the other characters, not all the other characters, most other characters are black, um, but she is not. But that has to do with traditional publishing. That's a different conversation. That's why, um, because people said, yeah. my agent and publisher said that they would not read a woman of color as the protagonist. So there we are. Oh. Um, that just hurts my heart. I don't have anything to say about that. That's what I was told. And I, you know, whether or not that's true is a different thing. It's so, it's so sucky. Oh, that's where we live in. It is what it is. It is what it is. I don't have anything to say that, but I have changed. So the protagonist for my new series is a, my spinoff series is a black woman as will be another, if I do another spinoff, which is a, the thing I'm thinking about it, there's nothing in, in the works. Um, but that was also the case. I also wrote romance for years and that was the case with the books I wrote then. And it was true. I mean, they, they were not publishing people of color except in very limited groups and limited quantities. And so we could not enter the main 
lines of romance. And that has changed, but only I remember when it changed. I don't know, maybe, I don't want to say 10 years ago, 2006, 7, 8. And it was a big hullabaloo. And they're like, look, we have one black author in this line. Look what we've done. You know, and we can't all be the one. So um, it was, it was very, I, I remember it. I remember the room, I was standing in the room. It was in, I think, a ballroom in San Francisco or Anaheim or LA. It was, in, it was California somewhere. And I was like, so, and they're like, yeah, just the one. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, oh, that's so sad. No, and interestingly, a lot of publishers are seeking out the same people they turned away, but a lot of those people turn to self-publishing and are making far more money than, they, than the publishers can offer. It's just, it's very interesting. Yep. It's, yep. it's an interesting, I guess, turnabout is fair play sort of moment. Um, but we shall see. We shall see. We shall see. I do wonder about that because I know a lot of live women lawyers, but there are not a lot of them in fiction. I still think, and I read a lot of crime fiction and the protagonists are still mostly white males. And then sometimes women detectives or women lawyers, but on the other hand, not many. Okay. Now I'm going to think about that because I only think about my own writing in my own lane. And I don't know if I think about the bigger world because I have to I get up every day and I think about writing a book. I don't necessarily always think about the industry as a whole or mm-hmm. as a whole or the canon as a whole, right. but it's certainly something I will think about. So thank you so, so very much for talking to me. And I will say that the anybody's daughter book I found compelling. I'll leave that. I don't know. I, I, it, it's a good book. It's not a topic that's, you know, great. It's not a great topic, but it's, it's quite compelling because I do wish there were more focus on the things that happen in those, especially with women who think the guy is their boyfriend or think the person loves them. And it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to me because those power dynamics go on in like a lot of relationships, but in those, in those instances, um, you know, it, it goes badly but we don't spend a lot of time talking about those particular power dynamics. And I wish there were more conversations about them. Yeah. That's uh, like I said, it's one of my favorites. Um, please tell your listeners, uh, if you're listening, um, do, do look for sounds like a plan, which is a book that I wrote with Dwayne Alexander Smith. Um, I, I see that on, on a TV screen and I'm, I'm I, I, I have, something in my heart that says that's going to happen. It's a really, it's about two uh, male and female detectives who are kind of like, they don't get along. They don't work. They they find out they're on the same case and um, a lot goes on. You know, I need a better elevator speech for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure in time it'll work out, but I do. I always, sounds like a plan. I always hope for the amplification of the big screen because not only does it sell a lot of books, but it reaches a lot of people who otherwise don't read. And I always think that's especially I always especially for books. Actually, I always think it's a good thing. Um, But with that, I want to thank you so so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And I always wish good writing. Thank you, and same to you. This has been a time to thrill with me, your host, Amy Austin. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll share, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It will help others to find and enjoy my conversations with brilliant women creators. 
Also, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. In addition to hosting this podcast, I am also the author of the Nicole Long series of legal thrillers. The first three books in the Nicole Long series are now live. You can download Outcry Witness, Major Crimes, and Without Consent to your e-reader right now. The fourth book in the new series, The Murders Began, is available for pre-order wherever you get your books. I am also the author of the Casey Quit series of legal thrillers. These titles are available wherever books are sold, your local library, and also an audiobook. You can also find this podcast on Facebook at A Time to Thrill. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with you soon with more great conversations.